0: Matthew chapter 26, this morning, finds us in verse 17, in preparation for the Passover meal that Jesus will observe and feast with his disciples. Matthew 26, starting in verse 17, I'm going to be reading through verse 25, and I'd like to ask Ariel to pray for the ministry of the word this morning. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man, and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now when evening had come, He was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. And being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And he said to him, You have said it yourself. Let us pray. Do the work which you have appointed to him. Lord, we are we are disturbed by this example. Most of you have read through the Gospels. Many of you have read through the Gospels multiple times. If you have read through the accounts of the Lord's Passion Week, as they're recorded in Matthew and Mark, Luke and John, you've probably come to realize that harmonizing the accounts is rather difficult. And scholars have attempted over the years, over the centuries, really over the millennia, you can buy books called Harmonies of the Gospels where the author tries to coordinate the different accounts of the four gospel writers and to blend them into one account of the events that took place and sometimes they are more successful than others. Sometimes they leave us with the sense that they are forcing things. Matthew and Mark, as I mentioned earlier as we were studying the betrayal of Judas and that process as it began in the house of Simon in Bethany remain pretty much in step with one another. Both indicate, as we read here in verse 17, now on the first day of unleavened bread, these events began to take place as the disciples asked Rabbi Jesus where he desired to take the Passover, which they had done at least a couple of times before With their master. Mark adds that it was this this time that the Passover lamb was being sacrificed. Luke is in general agreement in his account. He says, Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. But some read John as denying that Jesus ate the Passover at all. Because in John, we read, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, and that he should depart out of the the world to the Father, goes on to instruct his disciples. And so the meal that is recorded in John is considered by some scholars to be on the evening before the evening of the Passover. And, of course, that would cause a problem between the four Gospel writers, but an even more significant problem as we seek to understand what this Passover meant. Often the issues that revolve around us trying to harmonize different historical aspects of the Bible revolve around our demand of a singular historical perspective that is not really reasonable. In other words, we we would be probably happiest if all four Gospels were exactly the same. Of course, why would we have four of them then? There are four different perspectives here. Four different views. There probably were many others. These four were preserved by the Holy Spirit within the Scriptures for our edification, for our understanding. But we should expect no greater harmony among these four perspectives of a common event than we would expect from four different news channels all reporting on the same event, or any other set of historians commenting on a particular event in history. Our doctrine of inspiration, as I've mentioned before, tends to completely erase the human component of the writing of the Bible, and yet when we read the Bible, do we not realize that these were living men? That Matthew was not Luke, and Luke was not John. That Isaiah was not Jeremiah. That Hosea was not Malachi. That the author who wrote the Chronicles, perhaps Ezra, was not the same man who wrote the Kings. Their perspectives were different. But what do we do when there is an apparent contradiction? That's when it gets difficult. When it appears that one author is saying something that just cannot fit with what the other authors are saying. And in this particular instance, the question is, did Jesus eat the Passover or not? Well, let's talk about the feasts that are referred to in these four gospels because, in fact, we don't really understand what we're reading until we have some understanding of what they were celebrating and what within the Jewish culture of that era, the first century, the terminology they used to refer to this particular feast. This was the first of the annual three feasts to which the men Of Israel were required to go up to Jerusalem. But it is actually two feasts in one. It is the feast of Pesach, which is the Passover, followed by the feast of Matzot, which is the feast of unleavened bread. And so in the gospel records, we actually have Luke saying, Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is also called the Passover. In other words, he's saying, well now, the Feast of Mazot, which is also called Pesach. Well, Luke was writing to a Jewish audience. He was, I'm sorry, a Gentile audience, somewhat like we are. And he was explaining to them that these terms were somewhat interchangeable. In fact, if you read the, the account in Exodus, and later on, as these feasts were enjoined upon the Israelites to be celebrated once a year, we learned that the Feast of Pesach The Passover meal was to be eaten on the 15th of Abib, the first month of the ceremonial year of the Jewish calendar. It was there, in a sense, New Year's dinner. It was the beginning of a new year as it commemorated the beginning of their life as a nation. But it was also the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which began with that meal, in the evening of the 15th of Abib. So when Matthew and Mark say, as we just read, now on the first day of unleavened bread, what they're actually saying was Passover. The day of Pesach, when all of the lambs of the Passover meal were taken to the temple, somewhere between three in the afternoon and seven in the evening, Literally, in the Hebrew, it was between the evenings that the lambs were to be slaughtered, taken to their homes, roasted, and eaten that evening. Now, we also have to remember that the Jewish day did not begin at midnight, as ours does. The Jewish day began at six in the evening. And so we keep that in mind. We realize that they were talking about the day that we would call the daytime the evening of which would be the first day of unleavened bread, the day of Passover. Luke, as I mentioned, tells his Greek audience that the words were essentially interchangeable. And we read, for example, in Josephus, the Jewish historian who wrote on behalf of of the Jews for the Romans, interchanges the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Passover. He mentions in one account, for example, that over 250,000 sheep were slaughtered in that afternoon. That's a lot of lambs. But it was an interchangeable use of terms. And so when John speaks, as he does, the feast of Passover, he's actually talking about Matzot. He's talking about the entire seven-day period that began with Passover and then continued in the celebration and commemoration of what that Passover means. So he was not talking about a different time. He was not talking about the day before Passover. He was in agreement with his other gospel writers that each one is referring to the same event, and that is the meal that Jesus desired, and as we will see, earnestly desired, to eat with his disciples on the evening of the 15th of abib the passover lamb what's more important and why such harmonizing is important is what jesus says regarding that passover meal elsewhere he says that he earnestly desired and we're going to look at that in a moment he looked forward to this particular meal to eat with his disciples. And we might think that it was nostalgic that he wanted to to be with them one last time before his betrayal. But I I think when we look into the significance of this feast, we will understand that it meant a whole lot more to Jesus. And it should mean a whole lot more to us than just a meal with his disciples or just a national holiday, a festival like we may view Christmas or Easter. Easter. Why Passover? It is apparent that the eternal plan of God was that Jesus would be the Passover lamb. But why Passover? A reasonable case might be made, if we were planning these things, to actually have Jesus die on the third annual feast, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, right? Because we consider Christ's shed blood to be the blood of atonement. So why didn't he die later in the year? Why didn't he die? Why wasn't that sacrifice corresponding to Yom Kippur? Why did it occur at Pesach? Well, we say, oh, well, Paul tells us that Christ was our Passover lamb. Well, doesn't that designation come from the fact that he died on Passover rather than leading to it? The fact that he died on Passover is our recognition that he is our Passover lamb. Had he died on Yom Kippur, we would have called him our atonement, right? We would have called him our kofer, our covering, his blood, which we do anyhow. But he is our Passover lamb because Passover was when he died. So Why? Well, let's look at the meaning of Passover in Judaism. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the events that are recorded in Exodus chapter 12. This was the event that initiated the Passover and the Exodus. This was the night that the children of Israel were to slay a lamb, a male lamb, a perfect one, and they were to spread the blood of that lamb on the lintels and the doorposts of their homes. And during that night, the destroying angel would come through the land of Egypt, taking the life of the firstborn from the highest of Egypt to the lowest, including even the animals. It was a night of death. But the death came only to the firstborn. And it is written in Exodus chapter 12, verse 42, It is a night to be observed for the the Lord, for having brought them out of the land of Egypt, This night is for the Lord to be observed by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. It was a very vivid and graphic night. A night of fear. A night of expectation. A night when I'm sure many of the Jews wondered in their own minds and their own hearts whether this was going to work. This blood that they put on their doorposts as they heard the screams the laments of the fathers and the mothers, a Pharaoh himself who was not spared and his firstborn also died. This was the beginning of the Exodus. Now the Bible is full of word pictures and motifs and throughout the Old Testament the most powerful motif of deliverance and salvation is that of the Exodus. That which happened in history Became a paradigm and a pattern for what the people of God expected God to do in the future. That's important to realize and remember. What God did in the past was to foreshadow what He would do in the future. Passover then became an annual feast, it was a feast of commemoration and a feast of celebration. The one day of deliverance became a seven days festival of holy joy sanctified by the sacred number seven in which Israel rested from the oppression and toil of Egypt and participated in the blessedness of divine repose. C.F. Kyle wrote those words regarding the Passover feast. It was, as we view Most of us, many of us, Christmas. It was a happy feast. It was a time of commemoration when they realized this was the day that God delivered us. This was the day that God laid low our enemies in Egypt, brought us out of bondage, brought us into the promised land, and made of us a holy nation. And it was a happy festival. It was a good time for the people of Israel. Even though it was founded on the basis of death, the firstborn of Israel were preserved by the blood of the Passover lamb. And so Pesach, as opposed to Yom Kippur, has a different focus. Passover focuses on deliverance. Even though there is an element of atonement in that, Passover focuses on God delivering his people from bondage, gathering them together, taking them to a promised land and making of them a nation. It was their independence day, as it were. The day of their declaration of freedom from the bondage of slavery in Egypt and God was the one who was leading them forth. The day of atonement occurred every year. And it could not be a happy feast because it was a reminder of all the sins that the nation had committed offending their holy God. It was the time when the high priest, alone throughout the year, would go behind that veil, which had to be a very tenuous and dangerous situation. And his coming out would be more relief Than joy. That God had accepted the sacrifice of the bull and had granted grace for the coming year, but it was repeated year after year as an atonement because they were reminded each time of their sins, as they were every day by the morning and the evening sacrifices. But Passover was a beginning, and it could only happen once, from which time it could only be commemorated. And that's an important point too. This was something, this deliverance happened at a point in time in history and the nation was born at that time. From then on it could only be looked back upon, commemorated, remembered, rejoiced in. But there would never be, as far as the Passover was concerned, another beginning of the nation. But it was also a feast of communion. It was the most communal feast of Israel's annual festivals. Not only every man, but every family participated, including the aliens and sojourners who were with those families at the time of Passover. And those who did not have enough to eat a full lamb were brought into their neighbor's house Whereas on the Day of Atonement, only the priest, the high priest, went into the Holy of Holies. On Pesach, the whole nation sacrificed and ate lamb. They all commemorated the beginning of their people, the deliverance that God had wrought in bringing them out of Egypt and bringing them into the Promised Land. It was the most unifying of all the feasts. It was their communion. One author says, the design of these instructions regarding what they were to do for the Feast of Passover was to lay stress upon the fact that no Israelite was to be excluded or to exclude himself from participating in the Paschal Festival. It was for all of them. It was communion. It was Israel's feast. And all of those factors regarding the Passover bring us to the point here in our text where Jesus instructs his disciples to prepare for this Passover that he is going to celebrate with his disciples. Luke records Jesus saying, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now that phrase, earnestly desire, in the English, I, we just cannot quite appreciate the intensity of Jesus' desire, of his feelings. It's a Hebraism where the verb desire is repeated. It's written twice. Desiring, I have desired. But when I tell you what the word is, you might be a little bit scandalized. The word is lust. Epithumia. It's usually translated in the Bible as lust. And lust, of course, is something that we think of as being evil, as being misdirected. But the word itself simply means intense desire. When it's used in the negative, and we translate it lust, it's because we are directing it to an unholy and unwholesome target. As when a man lusteth after a woman in his heart. But when Christ says, lusting I have lusted... What he means is with the intensity of desire that if it were directed at any evil thing would constitute a sin, I have desired to eat this meal with you. Now it's that intensity of desire that makes me think there's something going on here. More than just a dinner. More than just the fact that Jesus knows that his death is near, that his end is come. The time for him to depart to the Father is nigh, and he would not have another Passover, but rather his knowledge that there would not be another Passover, at least not a real one, that this would be the last one. As I said earlier, the most powerful motif in the Old Testament with regard to salvation of God's people, is that of the Exodus. And Passover was the great feast of the Exodus. This was the meal of deliverance. Jesus' strong desire to eat the Passover was because the fulfillment of what those Passovers every year foretold was about to take place. We often talk about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And when we read the Gospels and we read what the disciples did and what Jesus did, we read about John the Baptist, then we get to the Book of Acts and the, and the Day of Pentecost. We don't really know when the Old Covenant ended and the New Covenant began, do we? And, and oftentimes there seems to be quite a bit of overlap. John is called the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, even though we read about him in the Gospels of the New Testament. And at the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out, and and we say that was the day of the birth of the church. But I will submit to you that that if there was a point in time, if there was one singular event where the the dispensation of the Old Covenant ended, And that of the new covenant began. We're reading about it right here today in Matthew chapter 26. It was this evening on the 15th of Abib that the old covenant ended and the new covenant began. It was this evening on the 15th of Abib that the most unifying meal of the nation of Israel shifted over to the unifying meal of the church of Jesus Christ. This is what happened. The lines of the prophets and of the law as they move toward the fulfillment of all that they prophesied move toward this event in the upper room on this night, this Passover, this meal of deliverance because in this night, as Paul says, the night in which he was betrayed, the blood that was shed that would be shed would not deliver the firstborn son of God there would be a substitute this night just as there was back in Egypt thousands of years before but that substitute was not going to be the firstborn of Egypt it was going to be the firstborn of God and the destroyer would not hold back Jesus knew that. We'll realize just how much he knew that when we follow him to the Garden of Gethsemane. But just as those lambs in Egypt took upon themselves the guilt of the firstborn of Israel and thus preserved the firstborn of Israel from the destroyer, so this lamb was taking upon himself the blood of his people, only it wasn't going to have the same outcome, because he was going to die. Can there be any other way to end the story? In modern times, there is a branch of Christianity called dispensationalism that teaches that it might have turned out differently. That as we, we read the gospel histories, you know how historians, historians love to come up with what-if scenarios? You know, what if JFK had not been assassinated? You know, those types of things. And the what-if story that is popular in, in the writing of dispensationalism is what if Israel had accepted Jesus as her Messiah? What if Israel had proclaimed Jesus to be the Davidic king and had acclaimed him to the throne? And the answer within traditional dispensationalism is that Jesus would have set up the millennial kingdom at that time, that he would have ascended to the Davidic throne and would have ruled and reigned for a thousand years from Jerusalem. One author even goes so far to say that had Israel accepted Jesus, then God would have come up with another plan to save the Gentiles. If you don't believe me, see me afterwards and I'll show you, (laughs) okay? It's an amazing statement. But could it have happened otherwise? Could there have been any other end to this story? Might the cup have indeed passed from Jesus? Was it all because Israel rejected him? I think you know the answer. The prophets spoke of the future using the language of the past. And for us to understand the deliverances that God promised in the future, we need to read the Old Testament and see what he did in the past. And when he ordered the children of Israel to slay that lamb and to roast it, to spread the blood on the lintels and doorposts of their homes, he was looking forward to the time when The true lamb, the perfect and unblemished, spotless lamb of God, would be that sacrifice. Jesus said, and it's recorded in the Gospel of John, that it was for this reason I came into the world, and that was to die. And here in Matthew 26 that we're reading, he says in verse 24, the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. The firstborn of Egypt died on the night of the first Passover while the firstborn of Israel were kept safe under the blood but this night a different people would be kept safe and a different firstborn would die and it would bring all of those Passovers throughout the ages to their culmination that he might become the firstborn from the dead that he might become the first one to pass through the grave, that he might be the older brother of an entire family of those, because he he met and defeated the destroyer that caused such fear among the children of Israel and the people of God. After this meal, and the subsequent and consequent death of the Lamb of God, there can be no more Passovers. It's an empty feast. For several decades after the death of Christ, the Levitical priesthood continued to sacrifice on the altar of the temple. But those sacrifices no longer had any meaning. They no longer had any significance. And in AD 70, it was done away with entirely when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. For the last 2,000 years, Jewish families have celebrated the Pesach and Matzot every year. And they look to the next year, believing that next year, the deliverance will come. They're still looking for the deliverance that has already come. Folks, this was the last Passover. This was the fulfillment of Passover. Lord willing, next week, as we move on through Matthew 27, we'll see that a new meal has been instituted, one that we do more often than annually, one that commemorates the death of the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, and proclaims his death until he comes. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for the record of your work that you have given us in your word. and We thank you that it is not given to us in a cold and analytical way, but rather the living history of your people and of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Passover Lamb. Father, we pray that we would come to appreciate what Christ has done in fulfilling that shed blood, what, what the firstborn of God, the only begotten of God, has done, in meeting and defeating the destroyer, conquering death and the grave, and becoming the firstborn from the grave. Father, I pray that as we contemplate the meaning of the Feast of Pesach, that we would come to a greater understanding of the meaning of the Lord's Supper. That it is indeed a unifying communion, the Feast of True Israel, that we might partake and participate in it with joy in our hearts, for we too have been delivered, not from the bondage of slavery to another man, but rather the bondage of sin. And we have been brought into your kingdom, for we are now the people of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So We ask, Father, that you would bless your word, bless your feasts, bless to our understanding the history of your people And of your redemption as you have given it to us in the Bible. And cause our hearts to grow in faith and adoration of our saving God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand this morning for the benediction from the epistle of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen.